Section eight of Six Radical Thinkers by John McCunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter two The Utilitarian Optimism of John Stuart Mill. Part five. A further point emerges when we consider the relation of discussion to action. It sometimes happens that an idea by reason of its very vitality may frustrate its own realization and enactment it is so at any rate with the idea of liberty not seldom liberty so inflames its votaries to assert the liberty to discuss that they cannot and will not see that in gratifying this passion for discussion they may be sacrificing the practical fruits apart from which political discussion at any rate loses all its value what spectator of parliaments is likely to deny that whilst the voluble rhetorician the fanatic and the bore are asserting what they call their freedom of discussion the sands may be running not the sands of the hourglass by which debate has sometimes been regulated but the more precious sands of time and opportunity for god's sake let us pass on says burke exasperated out of all sobriety of phrase by the type of man who accepts nothing and questions everything all this to be sure need not make us desire that mill in the fervour of his pleas for liberty of discussion had left even a sentence of that memorable chapter unwritten it only prompts the wish that he had added even one paragraph upon the seasonable limitations imposed upon discussion in the interests of reverence good sense and practicality the very limitations he admits do indeed but accentuate by their manifest meagreness the uncompromising emphasis of his doctrine the same line of criticism applies when we turn to liberty of action here also mill's defects are the defects of his virtues in its substance his teaching is incontrovertible no one need dispute the central principle that vigorous many-sidedness of character can come only of varied practical contact with the manifold interests and ends of a many-sided environment there is no other way human nature grows to the modes in which it is exercised and the citizen of a state will remain but a truncated specimen of humanity he will be mentally and morally mutilated to use adam smith's emphatic word so long as a narrow lot forbids his participation in the civic and social life in the religious and intellectual opportunities which it is the mark of a civilized society to offer this is the strength of mill's position the weakness appears in two exaggerations one the first is that in the eagerness of insistence that goodness ought to be various he forgets as fitz james stephen has it that variety of character is not therefore goodness it is not that goodness is not various none but ascetics whom mill justly repudiates would deny it the virtues are many and the more of them a man can realize without sacrifice of unity of character the better he is but then this unity must have its due without it the most engaging versatility passes at once across the line 
that parts that man of many qualities however shining from the man of principle and character it is not to be denied that the type after mill's heart lies open here to criticism moving at will within the monopoly of self-regarding acts free to indulge in eccentricities to his heart's content he wonderfully recalls the democratic citizen of platonic satire that restless type who is everything by turns and nothing long because in his motley party-coloured life the underlying consistency of a strong character has been lost yet even if this be true mill's exaggerations here lie toward the safe extreme versatility is not the snare of the modern democratic citizen the risk for him lies rather in the specialized life the narrow lot and the poverty-stricken soul begotten of the sheer urgency of livelihood and the grinding preoccupation with material necessities lamentably small is the risk deplorably distant is the prospect that a many-sided versatility will prove his snare two it is therefore a more needful criticism that in his eager plea for individual vigour and manifold diversity mill falls into an extravagant tenderness for social experiments social experiments be it remembered which are by no means incompatible with a narrow and contracted development in those who indulge in them the health of a society he even urges or to use his own words the amount of genius mental vigour and moral courage it contains is to be measured by the amount of eccentricity to be found within it non sequitur it is one thing to admit that in all societies that are full of life experiments in living are to be expected it is another thing to welcome these vagaries as if they were a service to society they are at best but the tributes of folly to freedom for eccentricity is but the parody of individuality and however true it be that fullness of life will produce experiments in living experiments in living need by no means come of fullness of life they may have quite another parentage in shallowness of nature inconsistency of purpose egregious vanity impervious conceit and fixed ideas it is good to think for oneself but as fitzjames stephen suggests it is not necessary that a man who thinks for himself should think differently from other people this is the distinction to which mill does insufficient justice in the fervour of his passion for fullness of social life he is all too tender to the follies and freaks that may end in irresponsible squandering of life's resources the other side of this toleration of vagaries is the well-known antipathy to social interference which led mill in passages to regard the mere refusal to bend the knee to social authority as a prime virtue nor is there any lack of forcible and vituperative phrase ape-like faculty of imitation and such like to make his utterance emphatic and it may freely be admitted that the words and warnings have their value for here as elsewhere it is the very strength and conviction with which mill has grasped a truth and the vehemence with which he urges it that have laid him open to attack 
the truth in question is that there is a case and a strong case for laissez-faire because in every developed human life there is and must forever remain a large region within which whatever savours of coercion and more especially of the coarse coercion of law is either altogether impossible or in the highest degree inexpedient this is a fact which no recognition of social solidarity or organic unity can alter it cannot alter it because it is rooted in the very nature of man as a spiritual and moral being it is so for example with thought society of course can by organized action interfere with thought it can do much to cut the sources from which thought is fed it can even enforce an index expurgatorius it can do even more by depriving thought of that free utterance which is an elementary condition of its health and vitality not without reason does mill moralize over all the wealth of ideas which so far as their diffusion goes may have been stamped out by a brutal obscurantism but thought itself no interference can touch it cannot because it cannot for thought is as the stoics phrased it the inner citadel within which even the humblest thinker owns no lord as spinoza taught it is so entirely of the essence of a man's being that it must needs persist so long as life lasts nothing that coercion can do can stifle it similarly with the religious spirit conceivably society might wage war upon religion or more probably it might set itself for it has many instruments to enforce religious conformity but at most it could achieve no more than a comparatively superficial and illusory success for the relation of the individual soul to god is so direct and so indescribably intimate that intervention between these two is flatly impossible it is a relation that lies deeper than law can touch a state religion however enforced could not create it nor could a secularist persecution destroy it for the religious spirit does not depend for its existence on the provision or destruction of religious facilities religion in its essence would no more perish if these facilities were swept away by a despotic secularism than it would be conjured into existence by their lavish provision indirectly the state may of course help or hinder directly it is impotent either to create the religious spirit or destroy it as with religion so with morality the old truism that men are not made moral by act of parliament is true for morality is more than behaviour more even than behaviour with such motives behind it as the state or external pressure of any kind can create in its essence it stands or falls with that inward attitude of will that dutiful spirit which lies deeper than the motives which the most powerful social authority can evoke even if all were done that the state can do and it can do much in providing moral education and smoothing the path for the realization of human faculty the root of the matter the moral spirit would still lie beyond its furthest reach nor is it otherwise in other relations of life which involve the deeper emotions and affections 
much as law can do for the family as an institution it is beyond its sanctions to ensure those spontaneous affections and personal ties without which the family loses half its value and all its charm in all such cases as these intervention with the individual finds natural and inexorable limits it may remove obstacles it may provide favourable conditions but beyond this it is impotent nor is this all in matters of religion and morality all interference is practised at a risk even in cases when it may be outwardly effective a public authority could conceivably compel its subjects to attendance on divine service or it might treat infidelity to the marriage tie as a heinous crime but it is doubtful if it would have thereby furthered the religious or the family life the probability rather is that by importing into such things the baser alloy of threatened pains and penalties it would have actually vitiated the motives of the person so constrained it is for these reasons that every citizen does well to foster with mill a salutary jealousy of social interference so long as much of the real significance of human action lies in the devout or dutiful or affectionate spirit there will always be room for champions of laissez-faire to remind society that there are regions of experience where its interference is impertinent so far there seems little cause to quarrel with mill's general result no one who takes a spiritual view of human life and character can doubt that much that is best in human nature lies quite beyond the province of either the social or the legal sanction the pity is that in his eager advocacy of this great truth mill should have tried to set it on so inadequate and indeed so false a ground the well-known ground that human actions part into two and that there is a charmed circle of self-regarding acts within which every individual is entitled to sit immune from all that society can or may wish to do if interference is to be invoked at all in this connection he will have it that it is solely because society is justified in doing what it can to protect this inviolable citadel against encroachment and attack it is a conception that is indefensible from whatever point of view regarded for in the first place it is not the most self-regarding actions that furnish the strongest case against interference it is religious actions or dutiful actions or domestic actions which are in their significance nothing if not altruistic and secondly a purely self-regarding action is no better than a figment for even though it was granted that there are many actions in a man's life which directly leave little or no immediate mark upon the lives of others it does not follow that such actions however secret however personal leave no mark upon his own life and the marks they leave on him go with him out into his work in and upon the world nothing can hinder this a man is not one person in private secret acts and another in public overt acts he is one and the same person in both his social value or his want of social value is the product of all his thoughts feelings and actions whether he call them self-regarding or not 
there are of course actions whose influence upon society at large are infinitesimal because their influence on the character of the doer of them is trifling de minimis non curatur but if we go beyond these what is it but a commonplace of experience that many a private man's whole social attitude and his lifelong action on the world have been vitally determined by what mill would call his self-regarding acts it is only an untenable atomism or a dangerous self-sophistication that can foster the illusion that in the hour of our self-regarding actions we are engaged in what concerns none but ourselves to stake the plea against social despotism on this is to give the case away it is therefore not surprising that mill holds to this figment of self-regarding acts only by an effort of dialectical skill which can hardly convince even the most friendly apologist now it is the hour of social conscience and we are bidden to play the role of critic of even the private follies of the fool the scene changes the hour of individualism comes and we are reminded that we are not to feel called upon to make his life uncomfortable now as would appear we are bound to judge our neighbour and tell him plainly what we think about him nay we may even shun his presence and warn our friends against him so far is his private life from being purely his own concern but then it is his own concern so conspicuously his own concern that however we may be convinced of his fatuity and however we may wish to sting him out of it by words that will go home we are never to pass beyond a policy of remonstrance and polite persuasion so hard is it even for a master of argument to reconcile the promptings of the social conscience with this laissez-faire individualism of self-regarding acts nor can we leave this topic without the reflection that it was surely by the irony of fate that it was reserved for mill to become the protagonist of self-regarding acts in his own devoted and strenuous life one suspects that self-regarding acts played but a slender part to his friends he was apostolic to his critics he was quixotic in his championship of public causes and when he retired in his closing days to avignon it was with the reflection that much of the world's best work had been done by those who lived remote from it similarly when we think of his writings when he made the greatest happiness principle his creed when he argued that self-sacrifice must find a place in utilitarianism when he avowed his sympathy with the religion of humanity when he argued for the paramount place of social feeling in morality when he foresaw the coming of a day when a common man would dig and weave as readily as fight for his country nay when he was arguing that the recognition of the charmed circle of inviolable personality was the path to greatest happiness he was himself administering the best antidote to his untenable doctrine of self-regarding acts a final criticism remains professor bain who never fails to deal faithfully with his friend has said that the weakness of the essay on liberty lies in the want of a steady view of the essentials of human happiness it is a fair criticism and it applies not only to the essay but to mill's writings as a whole for though few writers have so fully recognized the manifold elements of human well-being 
or moved amidst them with more habitual familiarity it cannot be claimed for him that we rise from his works with a compact and well-proportioned ideal of the public good we have fragments such as the chapter on the stationary state or the passage in the utilitarianism already cited or what he called his utopia of cooperation yet the fact remains that if there be a compact and connected ideal of happiness discoverable in mill's writings the reader is left to piece it together for himself and yet this criticism however just is no sooner spoken than one almost wishes it unsaid for after all the student of mill will find in his writings and in his life what is of more value than even a closely knit and symmetrical ideal of human happiness he will meet a powerful mind of the first rank in living contact with problems a thinker whose net was spread in the large currents of the thought of his time there was a tendency in mill's own day to regard him as a manufactured thinker a conduit for other men's ideas a logic chopping engine as anything in short rather than a living intellectual force sawdustish was john sterling's epithet and even in our own day one suspects there remains an impression to the same effect but if the study of mill's life and writings is fitted to press home one conviction more than another it is that his was a mind open independent and alive to the last he modestly declares i continue to learn and to unlearn from the first he began to do so despotically educated by his father who was without doubt one of the most masterful intellects of his generation and brought up at the feet of bentham himself his mind was not subjugated even to these great twin influences he had the vitality to go his own way to think his own thoughts to learn from other minds and to leave behind him a greater thing than benthamism the very strictures of his severest critics may be read as a kind of tribute jevons has assailed the inconsistencies of his bad logic and faulty ethics fitzjames stephen has impeached the inconsistencies of his political and social creed and many lesser critics than these have subsisted on mill's failures yet the sympathetic student of mill can afford to make all his critics welcome to all his inconsistencies for his inconsistencies come of the figure of his mental life they are born of the desire to know of the capacity and willingness to learn from other minds of the sense of the reality of the many problems in whose presence he habitually lived this is after all the greater matter better mills inconsistencies than the limited completeness of bentham better his unsolved difficulties than the arrogant narrow self-confident logic of his father for they are at any rate the fruits of an enlarged outlook and an enriched experience has he not said it if i am asked he writes in the autobiography what system of political philosophy i substituted for that which as a philosophy i had abandoned i answer no system only a conviction that the true system was something much more complete and many-sided 
than I had previously had any idea of. In the light of a confession of faith such as this, we can understand that if Mill had given fewer openings to critics, he would have given less convincing proof of his real greatness. End of section 8